This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Happier. What does that mean? You're supposed to be happier. What are you supposed to do? Drink? Put on, put on music? Dance? Uh, what? The one time during the year, it's totally acceptable for me to be mean. Right. Well, the, the question is that in the month of Av, it says you should be less happy. So, that, so they tell you how. Don't eat meat. Don't drink wine. Can't go to a wet, no, no wedding, no music. When it comes to having less happiness, they tell us how to have less happiness. When it comes to having more happiness, they don't tell us how to have more happiness. So we see from here that, first of all, a, a, a Jewish person, every person, not just a Jewish person, should always be in a state of happiness. In Ador, more happy. In of less happy. But that means you're always happy. Because the keli, the vessel... The vessel for um, spirituality, right, is is happiness. It's, it's simcha. If you're depressed, right, a person is depressed altogether, emotionally and spiritually. It's very hard to have a relationship when you're depressed. It's very hard to to be a person um, and do what you're supposed to do if you're depressed. So most depressed people, they're in their bed, they sleep, they're 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 taking themselves out of the action, out of the world. So, well, how am I supposed to be happy? You, you're telling me, rabbis, that, hey, it's, it's Ado, you should be happy, but you're not telling me how. So it seems to be that intrinsically, the month of Ado makes you happy. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Just the month of Ado makes you happy. Okay, so the easy answer to that is, Purim's coming. So if I know I'm getting married in two weeks... Right? So I'm happy two weeks before I get married. So I know Purim's coming. That's what makes me happy. Right? But then, what about the second half of Adar? If that was the reason, then once Purim happens on the 15th, right, 14th, 15th, then the second half of the month I wouldn't be happy. Just the opposite. I would be really sad because my happy... The whole reason I'm happy is that I'm getting married, right? I can't, can't compare it to marriage because after marriage you're still happy, right? We don't, we don't want to do that. But, but right, so what, what's the second half of the month? Yeah, but that's, that's Mishnah Nisan. No, but Adam and Adam, Mishnah Nisan where it starts. That means it goes into Nisan. And what about Nisan? It goes into Eo, which goes into Sivan, which goes into Shavuos. So you should always be, so that's why you're always happy because Jews always have a Yantav every two days. It's another Yantav, right? So that's, so, so, the, so the answer is very, very deep. Um, the answer is like this: the whole, the whole, the whole Megillas Esther, the whole miracle of the in the Persian Empire, what happened? You don't see any miracle. You don't see the splitting of the Yam. You don't see frogs and lice, and 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 and, and you don't you don't really see a miracle. It's it's happened many times in many empires that. The king killed the queen, then the next guy tried to kill the king, and then, you know, one thing added to another, especially in the Persian Empire. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar and this one, and then he had, he had this, this son, that, and his son killed him, and then his son killed him, and his son-in-law killed him, and if you read the Persian Empire, so it's not so, so you don't see a miracle, and in the Holy Ghost Esther, it never says Hashem's name. So you have this fantastic, huge miracle, but it, it's called Nister, it's called, it's hidden. You don't see it at all. When a person understands that you could have such a huge miracle, the Jews were supposed to be destroyed, women, children, nothing left, the Nazis, not a Jew left in the world, right? 
We all got saved, and the whole thing turned, and the whole thing changed. And God's not there. There's no, there's no God in the, There's no God in this movie. He didn't get into the movie. Doesn't say his name at all, not even once, not even once. So you realize that even such a big miracle, or a small miracle, even when God's name is not mentioned, he's the one who's pulling the strings. The Rafua. Right. If you would translate the Megillah into English, right, and you would read it as a story, you would not see Shem at all. You could read, you could read the history of the Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Shakespeare, right, Caesar, the whole up, you know, Itabrute, he killed him. The whole, the whole uprising. This happened all the time. This was not not normal. Print the, the queen said no. She got her head chopped off. This is not something that's... That, if you translate this into English and you put it into Barnes & Noble, people would read it as a history story. It would be on the History Channel, right? And cable. No one would say, wow, God did a big miracle. They watch Moses, the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, Charles Heston, ah. Big miracle, the waters. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The water splits up and the Jews go through the water. And right, it's... It, one of the most important things in a person's life is to know that things don't just happen. I deal with a lot of atheists and who come, agnostic atheists, to come to talk to me, and they're not happy. Nobody ever walked into my room and said, Rabbi, what's going on? What's up? I'm an atheist. They're like, Rabbi, they tell me that you can prove me God. I don't believe you can prove me God. I'm like, first thing is say hello. Second thing is smile. No, they're not happy. Why isn't an atheist happy? Because if you don't believe in God, it means that this guy is rich and I'm not. you know why? There's absolutely no reason for it. Random. Things happen. Stuff happens. Everything, everything in the world is random. If there's no God, everything is, there's no reason. So that I'm sick and he's not, is I'm not lucky that this person died and this one didn't, is... It's just random. There's no reason or rhyme for anything that happens in the world. There's a system, and even the system doesn't work, and we were monkeys, and now we're humans, and there's just no reason for, every, for anything. When you live in a world with no reason for anything, it's very depressing, because you got rich people, and I'm not rich. you got healthy people. So let's say this guy's not healthy. This guy never got married, and this guy got married. This guy has children. This one can't have children. And it's all random. I can't have children because I can't have children. That's not fair, right? It's also a life that seems very not fair and you're very jealous and you're, you're chasing because you believe there's, there's no hashkacha pratis. There's no reason for anything. So anything can happen. Things happen. Stuff happens. And the world is a random place. People die for no reason. Absolutely no reason. There's no reason for them to die. They're just not lucky. When you live in such a world, you cannot be besimcha. When you understand that there's a master plan, and that this whole Megillah's Esther, there was a master plan pulling the strings that was behind the whole thing, and then you realize that, you know what, I'm not a rich guy, and this guy is, my neighbor is a very rich guy, but you know what, there's a God in the world, so there's a reason, just, I just want to know that there's a reason, that this person died at 50 years old, and this guy's living at 90, and the guy at 90 is the most miserable guy in the world and the guy who died at 50 is the nicest guy in the world and it doesn't make any sense 
and it's not fair. If I know that there's a, there's a reason, now I don't always know the reason, but I know that there's a reason. My best example is that we know that the physical world and the emotional world and the spiritual world, they, the, the, the Zayar says, they all shadow each other. If, if a doctor comes to me and says, I'm going to give you a needle, and I'm like, why? And he says, absolutely no reason. I didn't give enough needles today. And he gives me a needle. Same doctor gives me the same needle. And I'm like, why are you giving me a needle? He says, because you have pneumonia. And this is penicillin. It's going to make you better. Do you think the second needle will hurt as much as the first? For sure not. For no reason, it's going to kill me. For a reason? Okay, you can handle it. It's all right. So the same person has a tragedy, but he's an atheist. And there's no reason for this tragedy. It's just random tragedy. Or a person has a tragedy and he understands that I don't understand, but Hashem doesn't do anything for no reason. It's n- it's, it can be even that it's not a tragedy. If you understood really why it's happening, right, that it could be it's not a tragedy. I spoke to you, we spoke about this a while ago, that I was sitting with a bunch of therapists um, about, a, about a year ago. I spoke, I gave a speech, and at the end of the speech, I asked them, can a person who went through trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma, or emotional trauma, ever be totally cured? Okay, that was, that was the question. They said, we can give them coping skills to live with the trauma and go on. What about Wallerstein? If it happens... You can't change what happened. You can't go backwards and make that it didn't happen. The only thing that we believe that you can do that is in tshuva. Tshuva, if I did an Avera when I was 14 and now I feel bad about it, I could go back and erase that, what happened. But you cut someone's arm off, you cut someone's arm off. It's not there. Someone's, a kid is 8 years old, gets sexually abused. She's sexually abused. You can go to therapy all your life and talk about it, but it happened. So I said, so you believe that the, the, the therapeutic world can help the person go through the pain, cope with the thing that happened, but you don't believe that you could change what happened. So you're not really giving 100% a cure. That wound is, has an anesthesia. You don't feel it anymore, but it's there. And if you talk to most kids that, that I deal with that were sexually abused, it's there. It's a, it's a life sentence. And the person who does it should be put in jail for life. Not for five years, not for ten years. Because the person they're abusing is going, to, is going to be dealing with it for life. So they deserve a life sentence. But I disagreed. And I said, with all respect to all of you, I can tell you that you can be 100% cured. They're looking at me like, you're not a therapist, like, right? What, what are you talking about? I'm not going to go into the whole situation. You guys have spoken too bad about it. But So I was, I was in third grade. I was a little boy, um, nine years old, maybe ten years old. And you know the story, I went through crazy abuse. Um, and I carried that to tenth grade, and then I went through it again. Um, and it was very hard to deal with. But at my age right now, after using that pain to build what I built, the high school, the rehab, the seminary, Ornava which I never would have done had I not gone through the pain. Who cares? I go to Florida, buy myself a few cars, enjoy life, fly around the world, right? What do I need to help people for? 
but I made that decision when I was very young that I'm going to make sure what happened to me doesn't happen to others. And the only way to do that is to go into the belly of the beast. So I became a, I became a Rebbe, and I made sure that the 25 boys for 30 years that sat in my class were protected. I couldn't change the world, but I could change their world. The famous story with the starfish. The old man at the sea, standing there, and there's a low tide, and all the starfish are caught on the sand, and they're all dying because they're not in the water. And he bends down to pick one up, and this young boy stands next to me and says, Old man, you're a fool. There are millions of them. You can't, you can't help them. And he looked at the little boy and he said, No, I'm not the fool. You see, this starfish, I'm throwing it back in the water. Watch. And he throws him into the water, and he says to the kid, he says, For that starfish, I saved his world. I didn't save the world. I saved him. His world. So I realized that at 20 years old that I could not change the world, but I could change their world. So I became ready. It was totally not where I was going. That's for sure. I didn't even know how to spell the word Gemara. Spell it with a hey instead of an aleph. The guy laughed me right out my first interview. I sat there in front of him. He said, what do you want to teach you? I said, he said, okay, fill it out. I wrote Gemara. Gimel Mem Hey. So he said to me, you want to teach in my school? You're 20 years old. You went to base Medrash and Yeshiva. And you don't even know how to spell Gemara? I said, how do I spell it? He says, with a hey. I said, I'm just nervous. He goes, really? I don't think so. I think you don't know how to spell. I said, why? He says, because Bava Metzia, you totally spelled wrong. I can't even read it. So I was like, so embarrassed. So I wasn't Rebbe material. Okay? But if Hashem came to me today, and said, I'll give you back your life, you could live it over again, and what happened in third grade will not happen. And what happened in tenth grade will not happen. Do you want to live your life over again? My answer would be, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If I wouldn't have gone through that trauma, I would not, have, I would not be sitting here teaching you guys tonight. No way would I have 800 shiur on Torah anytime. No way would I have a rehab, I was just up there yesterday, with girls that would not be alive anymore today. No way would I have a horse ranch. No way. So therefore, listen carefully. Because of what I did with the trauma, it's no longer trauma. It became a positive experience. I got hurt. But through getting hurt, I built, Baruch Hashem with Hashem's help, He built through me what I built. So that experience is no longer painful at all. In fact, it's the opposite. And that's when the wound closes. When you take your pain, your stuff, and you use it to help others on a level that you would go through the pain again. That's when it helped. That's when it, and I said to them, I said, so I, I can talk about myself. But do it again. I would say, Hashem, do it again. I can't be who I am without it. And that's when the whole thing changes. And that's knowing that things don't happen random. That's knowing that in third grade when that was happening to me, I didn't have a choice. I was a little boy. Hashem chose that to happen because Hashem knew. He still had the choice what he's going to do with it. But he could he could do a lot of good with it. And knowing that, that it wasn't random, changed my life. If I was an atheist, 
would be a bitter, angry, Jew-rabbi-hating human being. What a difference when you know that in your life, nothing's random. Everything has a reason. That's the simcha that happens automatically in Adar. You don't got to drink, and you got to go dancing, and you got to listen to music. When you come into Adar, and you look at Purim, and you realize that such a big miracle, God is totally hidden, and that He controls and He's connected to everything that happens, all of a sudden, all the bad stuff in your life that's keeping you down and making you sad, and you're like, this is a, I'm, I'm hurting for a reason, you know, it's painful for a reason, I'm getting a shot, you know, before the guy works on my root canal, and he's going to be, it's going to pinch, and it pinches, and it hurts, but you know that in five minutes you're going to be numb, and he can drill and fix your tooth, and you'll be good again, and you won't have that toothache anymore, then it's worth it. If you think he's just giving you a shot for no reason, you're not sitting in that dentist chair. That's Mishnichnas Adar Mavar Musimcha. When you come into Adar, and you see that Hashem is hidden, and that he's in everything, automatically, to tell you to drink would be a downer. That realization that everything I'm going through in my life, it, there's a reason for it, it's much bigger than a drink. A drink's a moment. That's a lifetime, understanding that everything in your life, there's a reason for Some stuff you understand, and some stuff you don't understand. That, that's fine. That's fine. I can't understand everything. My goldfish doesn't understand everything when I feed it either. So that, that doesn't mean it's my goldfish, and it doesn't mean I'm a... When I put the food on top, they all come up to the top of the tank. That's all they know. They don't know who my father is. They don't know what school I'm in. They don't know anything about me. They don't know how much I weigh. They don't know anything. They know that I'm feeding them. So on every level that you are, you have a certain level of knowledge. We have a certain level of knowledge, but at a certain point, there has to be an acceptance. I get on a plane. I'm going to St. Louis tomorrow, right? I'm going to speak. So I'm going to St. Louis tomorrow. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. Do I know how a plane flies? Did I take physics? Do I know anything about it? I get on a plane. I sit in my chair. Plane flies! I trust the pilot. Why do you trust the pilot? You don't trust God. Maybe the guy drank. Maybe he had a fight with his wife. Maybe he's on a mission to kill everyone in the plane because he doesn't like humans anymore. Right? You trust. He's wearing a nice uniform with a little wings. He's got a nice helmet, hat on. And everyone gives him all this respect. And he's, he's your pilot. You sit down. You have no idea how a plane flies. The thing weighs, I don't know how, thousands of tons of metal, right? You sit back, and you're not worried, right? Most of the time, anyway. And the plane takes off and it flies. But Hashem, who created a world, forget about a pilot, a human being, created a world, you're able to see, you're able to smell, you're able to hear, you're able to feel all five senses, you're able to talk, you're able to communicate, you're able to love, you're able to have emotions. Created this whole world, nobody trusts him. I don't know if he knows what he's doing. Why did this happen to me? I'm not sure he knows what he's doing. The pilot you trust. The guy in the Greyhound bus you trust. In the subway, you trust those guys too. Why? Why do you trust them? Because he's the pilot. If I'm not going to trust him, I'm not going to get on the plane. If I don't get on the plane, then I'm not going to get where I'm going. So that, that's the happiness of Adar. We're understanding that there's a Kishborchu in the world and that... that that's emuna. That's bitachon. There's a certain amount of trust. The more you trust, the easier it is to live. The gedolim that I know, Rapam, 
and Rav Chaim Kainevsky and all the Gedolim that I know, Rav Avadu Yosef, they didn't have panic attacks. They weren't depressed. They weren't on, 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 on Prozac. How come? People came to them all day long with their problems. Because the closer you are to Hashem, and the more you trust Him, the easier it is to live. It's not harder to live. It's much easier to live. Atheists have a hard time. I met one tonight. I met one tonight before I came here. And he said, Rabbi, my biggest problem is I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of everybody. He said, what do you do about that? He said, I'm jealous of success. I'm jealous of good-looking people. He's losing his hair in the front. He says, I'm jealous of people who have a full head of hair. I'm jealous of everything. I'm like, why are you jealous? Because you don't realize that what you have or what you don't have, there's a reason for it. So automatically, if there's no reason, of course I'm jealous of you. That's why it's in the commandment, right? I'm Hashem, your God. What does that have to do with being jealous? The answer is, if you believe I'm Hashem, your God, then why are you jealous? Why are you killing somebody else? Why are you stealing? If you're supposed to have this, and he's supposed to have that, why are you stealing? So the whole, the whole Ten Commandments starts with, If you don't know that I'm your God, then everything else falls down. Then you can steal, you can kill, you can do everything. There's no God. Listen, I read an article years ago. I talk about this all the time. It was fascinating. I always wanted to know about these guys. In the Amazon, there's, a, there's a, a couple of tribes that are cannibals. They eat people. To me, that's fascinating. Like, how do you eat a person? Right? So I read the whole article. And they would go and get a, take a person, and they would kill him, and they would cook him up, and the village would eat that person. So they went to the chief, and they asked him... Um, this is such a savage, you know, thing that they used to do in the past. Like, it's time to, you know, they have satellite dishes on their huts, but they're eating people. Like, what's, what's the deal? So the chief told him, you go to war and kill many, many, many people for oil. That's what he told him at that point. You kill many, many, many people for oil, right? He says, but you don't eat them. He says, we, 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 kill people, but we eat them. So we kill one or two people a day to eat them. You kill thousands and thousands for oil and you just let them rot. You don't, you don't, you don't even eat them. Why are you calling us savages? You bomb, burn, shoot, explode human beings for oil, for property? We don't do that. We don't do that. We kill one or two people a day. Depending on the size of the village. He says, we're not savages. You're savages. So you can rationalize everything. If there's no God, why can't you eat someone? It doesn't say in the Torah you can't eat someone. Why can't you eat someone? The, the animal kingdom, we're part of the animal kingdom, we're considered, right? Mammals. Part of the animal kingdom, the big one eats the little one, the little one eats the smaller one, the smaller one eats the smaller one. The fish do that, the birds do that, the bugs do that, the animals do that. So why can't the human beings do that? Because Hashem said, you can't do that. You can't eat another person. I put plenty of food in the world. You can't steal from another person because whatever you have is for you. Whatever they have is for them. And you can't be jealous of another man's wife. I gave you your wife. That's what's supposed to be your wife. He has his wife. The whole jealousy, that whole... I explained it to him today. I said, if you're an atheist, then why shouldn't you be jealous? I'd be jealous. There's no God. Then why does he have something I don't have? Why can't I steal it from him? Why can't I steal it from him? Why should he have something I don't have? So the whole thing goes off. So the Ten Commandments has to start with, I am Hashem, 
your God who took you out of Mitzrayim. I took you out of Mitzrayim. I made all those miracles. I took you out of Mitzrayim. And therefore, everything has a reason. Your parents, very important. Why do I have to honor my parents? They had fun one night and had me. Right? But, but if there's no God, I have to honor my parents. What do I owe my parents? If it's just random, two people got together, she got pregnant and had a kid, everything's just random. So there's no connection. I, I sat with a guy who was very intelligent, he was an atheist, and he said, I don't feel that I have any responsibility at all to my parents. An animal, the parents have responsibility to the animal. The animal doesn't, have, doesn't feed the parents. He said, my parents, it's part of the probation of the world and it's just random. You know, some people have children, some people don't. What do I owe them for? I have nothing to do with them. And then he said to me, if I ever get married and have children, they have no meaning to me. Why? No, it's the animal kingdom. Why do I? Why do I? I will take care of them. He said, "I will take care of my kid till he can walk and he can eat, have a good life." It's just an animal thing. It's just getting pregnant. It's all animal. It's all. It has no reason. It has no. You don't. You, we don't. You can't even understand that. It has no. We have children because it's built into the world of evolution. You're an amoeba that had. You're nothing. It's nobody. It's no connection. So in the in the Sarasadibros, Hashem says, number one, nothing's random. So that you, that those are your parents, is not random. I chose them as your parents. And therefore, you need to respect them. And, and they also need to take care of you. And there's mitzvahs back and forth that a parent has to support a child to a certain age. That whole thing is Adar. That whole thing is Adar. Because that uh, we can understand. You took me out of Mitzrayim. Okay, God, I owe you something. I saw what you did. Here, I don't see you. I don't see you anywhere. Where are you? Even though we know, we know that in the Megillah, when it doesn't say Hamelech Achashverosh, and it just says the word Hamelech, it means God, which is very scary. Because, that's what we're really going to speak about tonight. This is just the, the preview. Because when when Haman came to Achashverosh, he said the following. Do me the words from inside. Here. So, so he, when he came to Achashverosh, he told Achashverosh, let's, um, let's kill all the Jews, right? Achashverosh, the Medrash says, said to Haman, are you crazy? I am doing so well. I have 127 countries. I just had the biggest party of my life. I got thousands of women in my harem. Life is beautiful. Why? Start with the Jews. Um, Paro started with the Jews. Finished. He lost everything. Nebuchadnezzar, my grand-grandfather-in-law, started with the Jews. He lost everything. Whoever... Started with the Jews, lost everything. I have everything. Why would I start with the Jews? Well, Haman was an Amaleki. And Haman knew what made God, Amalek knows what makes God angry. So Haman said to Achishverosh, you're right. The Jews that Paro lost to, they were Ba'achlis, they were together. 
They even told each other when they went to look at the stuff that they were going to take from the Mitzrayim, you could have this and you could have that, and they gave each other a lot of stuff. It says, they were Ba'achdus. In the Vuchanetzah's time, they were Ba'achdus. They were always Ba'achdus. He says, you can't mess with the Jews when they get along with each other. I wish we knew that. You can't. Haman knew that. Amalek knows more than we know. Amalek said, Yeshno, Amechad, there is a nation. They're spread out amongst the nations. They're assimilating. They're marrying Goyim. On top of that, they don't get along with each other. And that's not something God's going to stand for. So yes, you're right. But we have nothing to lose here. We're going to get all their money. We're going to get everything. Because God will not save them this time. Because they are assimilating, which God hates. And number two, they don't get along with each other. All three are country. They're not. Now, remember what I just said. Guys, remember what I just said. That when it just says Melech, it doesn't mean Achashverosh. It means God. So he's telling Achashverosh, and the rules of the king, not Achashverosh, Achashverosh, the rules of God, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're, at that time, was one of the highest points of assimilation. Hashem, it's not worth it for you to keep them. Why? Why isn't it worth it to keep them, guys? You're going to keep Klai Yisrael because they're Klai Yisrael, because they're the Jewish nation. But if they're assimilating and they're marrying out two, three generations from now, Hashem, there's no more Jews. Because every Goyish woman that has a kid is a guy. So, it's not worth it for you, Hashem, to keep them. You're going to save them and save them and save them. Within three generations, they're not going to be here anyway. That's it. They're gone. Once the child's a guy, the children are going. So, he was, this was Amalek talking to Hashem. And they said, they're not keeping your rules and they're assimilating it's not worth it for you. What are you, what are you doing? Are you going to save this generation and another generation and a third generation and a fourth generation? There are no more Jews. So what are you wasting your time for? This is Amalek talking to God. Let's go further. If it's okay with you, Hashem. Again, no Achashverosh. If it's okay with Hashem. You should write in your book in Shemayim to destroy them. You should see this Zayar. You should see the Zayar on this. Hashem took off his ring, whatever that means. From his hand. He gave it to Amalek. Okay, whatever. Do whatever you want. And then, later on, when Esther came to Hashem, and she said, change what you wrote to save the Jews. Hashem said, I can't. Let's see what she's, exactly what happened. Batipa Raglov, she davin. Could you write that everything should change? And he said, 
that whatever was written here. It's very scary. Anything that's written by God, the nachtoim b'tabasa melech, and signed with God's ring, ain't lahashiv. You can't change. So how did it change? It says that once Hashem signs, cannot change. So how did it change? So, what? You're right. But, but, okay. So let's let's talk about this for a minute. First of all. Why did Mordechai go, every time Haman came out of the castle to go home, Mordechai would run in front of him. Everybody would bow, Mordechai would not. Mordechai, you know that you're aggravating Haman. And in the end, because he didn't bow down to Haman, Haman said, I'm not only going to kill Mordechai, I'm going to kill all the Jews. We didn't have a right to do that. Listen. You don't want to buy down to him? You think he's wearing a getchka? He's wearing a, a, a vajazara? And you don't want to buy down to him? Go to the base medrash. You know, 4 o'clock every day he leaves the, the castle? Go learn! Don't bow down to him. We're not telling you to bow down to him. Go learn! Why are you in, inciting him? If the whole thing is, it's an Avera, you want to teach all the Jews. It's Avera, you're not allowed to bow down to him, so go, when you, whenever you see Haman, turn around, right? Don't go in front of him, and go learn! What are you doing? So Mordechai wanted to, to teach the Jews a very important lesson. I, I, I talk about this all the time. Mordechai said like this. It's an Avera to bow down to an Avera Zara, right? It cannot be that God is God. If I stand in front of Haman and I don't bow down to the Avera Zara, I'm doing what God wants, Right? That's what it says in the Ten Commandments. Not allowed to bow down to an Avodah Zohar. Could it be possible that because I'm doing what God wants, it's going to cause someone to wipe out the Jews? Then he's not God. It's not, I'm not, if I'm not doing what he wants, I understand you want to wipe us out. But if I'm doing what you want, you're going to wipe us out because I'm doing what you want. So he did it in front of Klai Yisrael to tell them, don't be scared not to bow down. That Haman is going to go kill you. Because if that was the case, that means there's no God. You, if you're getting punished for doing the right thing, that means there's no God. The reason that we're being punished, said Mordechai, is because you went to the party, and you assimilate, and you're assimilating, and you're doing the wrong thing. So he specifically did not hide in the base medrash. He went out in front of them to teach them an important lesson. Just like the person who thinks if he gives charity, right, he's going to make... He's going to make less money. It doesn't make sense. We have a hotel for Pesach, right? Okay. And many years ago, there was a family that wanted to come. She, she was an almana, a bunch of kids, and they needed two rooms or three rooms. A room is $8,000, $9,000. It's like $27,000 worth of rooms. So my first reaction was, ah, it's very nice, but there's cheaper places to go. Go, go. you know, if to go to Phoenix, Arizona, go to New York to some, you know, cheap place, whatever. My second reaction was, one second, you're telling me if I give her three rooms, which is $27,000, I'm going to lose $27,000? One second, Hashem. I'm taking care of an amana 
a widow and orphans, you're going to punish me because I did the right thing? Doesn't make sense. I'll probably get the $27,000 back at an appeal. And I make an appeal for my tzedakah. Right. It doesn't make sense if I do the right thing that's going to hurt me. Then you're not, then you're not God. It doesn't make sense. And therefore, I gave the three, I gave the two three and we made plenty. That's not the point. The point is, you're never going to get hurt for doing the right thing. That was the point Mordechai was trying to teach the Jewish nation. You're pointing at me? I caused this? I didn't cause this. You guys assimilated. You went to the party. You weren't supposed to do that. I told you not to do that. Don't point the finger at me. That's not me. Well, why don't you go to the base medrash? Because I don't want to be in the base medrash. I want to show you that bowing down to Haman is not going to hurt me. And it's not going to hurt us. That was a very important lesson that was taught by Mordechai. That's why he went in front of his face and he said, I'm not bowing down to you. And Haman got very angry. And that's why it says that he wasn't really scared that in the end, we would be destroyed. Now, there's a very big question. I always tell you the Medrash that when, when Hashem wrote, God wrote the Gzar that we're going to be destroyed, God wrote it, right? And he signed it. So Eliyahu Navi came to, Eliyahu Navi saw what was going on, and he came to Moshe Rabbeinu, and he said to Moshe Rabbeinu, I need you to go in front of God and to pray that the Jews, the Gzerah, should be broken. Moshe Rabbeinu said, you need to look to see if, the, if Hashem signed in blood or if Hashem signed in ink. Asks the Medrash, God has blood? God has ink? God has blood? God doesn't have blood. What did he do? Prick his finger and blood came out? What does it mean he signed in blood? What does that mean? And we've spoken about this many times. What does that mean? You, you, when I tell you this, you guys just listen. And you're like, okay, he didn't sign a blood. What do you God can sign a blood? Whose blood? There's no blood up there. What blood? Our blood. He, 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 he came down, he, he pricked your finger? So the, so the Zayar, the Shem says, oh, it's amazing what he said. He said, we know that in God's world, there's no time. The t- time is based on our will by the sun, right? The whole going around the sun. Up there, there's no sun. There's no going around the sun. So time is in this world. There's no time outside of our, uh, our world, right? So God's past, present, and future is all the same moment. We're pretty close to that. You know, in the Olympics, you're watching, they're up to like a thousandth of a second. You could beat someone by a... Th- so you could take a second, right? You have one second. There's a thousand parts of the second. Today, in a race, you can win by one thousandth of a second. So they already took a second, and they're able to split that into a thousand pieces. So that means that the first 333 parts of the second is the past. The 333 in the middle is the present. The 33 that's coming up is the future. In the other world, it's even broken down into zero. There's no time. There's no sun. So the past, present, and future is the same. So Moshe Rabbeinu asked Eliyahu if the Gezerah is in blood, that means they died already. It means their blood was spilled. And I can't pray backwards. If the blood is spilled, the blood is spilled. It means it happened already. That second happened. If it's not signed in blood, it means we didn't get up to the Gezerah yet. We didn't get up to the killing of the Jews. And therefore, we still have a time to pray. So if you see blood, that's the Jewish blood. We're dead already. If we're dead already, 
then I can't save us from dying in, in, in a time, a place where there's no time. But if you don't see blood, it means it didn't, Hashem didn't kill us yet. They didn't kill us yet, it's not time to change it. And he was very sure that there's only one way to change it. What was the way to change it? They came up with this fantastic idea. What's her name? Esther came up with this idea. We're going to fast for three days and three nights. We're going to pray. We're going to daven. And he said, not going to work. It's not going to work. There's only one way to get God off his chair of din and put him on his chair of rachman. Assimilation every single time that we've ever assimilated, we got whacked. We were doing well in Spain. We were rich. We were, becoming, we were going to the universities. We were becoming like them. We had the Spanish Inquisitions. We had the Crusades. Germany was the height of assimilation at that time, before the, before, the, before the Holocaust. The Jewish nation was assimilating in many different ways. We wanted to be like the Goyim. We got whacked. Every time we thought that we belong and we want to be like them, we got whacked. Over here, the Jews were assimilating. So even praying and fasting would not have helped. But there is a secret weapon. And Mordechai knew the secret weapon. And he went to the Tinaikish Shorais Rabbim, all the little children, and he gathered them all together. And the Medrash says, they fasted for three days and three nights, little kids, and they were learning. And the mothers came with food and said, you little kids, you're not by mitzvah, you don't have to fast. And they said, we're fasting. And the Medrash says that they fasted. But they were little children, so by the third day they started to cry. And they weren't eating, but they were little kids. And it says that Hashem turned to his malachim and said, I hear the cries of little sheep. What is that? And they said, it's, it's Klaishwell's little children. And that's when Hashem said, my little children, my pure little children, my little sheep. And he got out of his kisei of din, and he went into his kisei of rachamim, and that's when the whole Gezeira changed. The whole Gezeira was ripped up. And it's very fascinating because I taught kids that were not religious. That was my, when I was teaching in Crown Heights Yeshiva. And I, we love to teach Megillah Esther. And I was telling them that Hashem's name is all over the place, but it's not there. It's just as Amelech. The beginning of the Geula of the of everything turning, the turning point when things change, was Perek Vav. Perek Vav starts, That night, the king could not sleep. Says the Zayar, it's talking about God. God just wrote Xero that his own children should be destroyed, and he could not rest. So, Wayoma he said, He said to the Malachim, Bring me the book of memories. Divrei Hayamim. And they read it in front of the king. And the Divrei, of course, the book of memories was Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Akedas Yitzchak and all the other things that happened. And for the Kirk who could not sleep. And therefore, in the end, the Malachim, right, that was the beginning of the end of Haman. And one of the boys in my class said, Rebbe, 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 I gotta tell you something. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, 
I just counted the word Hamelech in Perek Vav. And it's mentioned, the word Hamelech, 26 times. 26 is Yudke Vavke. Yudke Vavke is Rachamim. So the Rachamim of Hashem started in, per- in this Perek in Perek Vav. And w- what happened to make that Rachamim? What happened was the little Kindalach. Because the little Kindalach didn't assimilate. The little Kindalach was singing the Aleph Beis. The little, the little kids are excited about Hashem. I went this morning to Beis Yaakov of Queens, and my granddaughter had a sitter play. Sitter play. First, first time she got a sitter. For a half an hour, they sang so many different songs. You know, I deal with a lot of kids that are off the derech and atheists and drugs and all this stuff. And like, I'm just sitting here watching 30 little girls, pure, pointing up to Hashem. Beautiful little girl, Jewish girls. The purity and the beauty of these children and I was like, I need to stay here every day, like in the morning, before I stop my job. Because, you know, I live in a world, you know, a guy who does cancer, he's an oncologist, he looks at everybody and thinks everyone has cancer. Because that's all you see all day. So every bump on a person's face, oh, this guy needs, oh, this one. So you, all day long, you're dealing with people who are struggling and all that. So you think the whole world is like, and then you see these little girls singing, and they're so happy about Hashem, and they're so happy about their sitter, and they're all phase, and they're going to cover it tomorrow. And they had balloons with it. And I was, I was sitting there, like, you know, Judaism isn't dead. Hashem looked at the same thing. He looked at all the little kids. He said, Judaism isn't dead. Yes, the, the, the adults are assimilating, but these are the children, and they're not, they're not assimilating. And Haman tried to, Amoli tried to tell me, they're not worth saving. And Hashem said, you know what? The adults, maybe they're not worth saving. Because they want to go to parties, and they want to marry into that, and they, they want to marry out, and they want to do all that. Maybe they're not worth saving. But the little kindalach, they're worth saving. And Hashem went from the Judah and then, and that's what saved us. I want to end with this thought. Sorry that we started so late tonight. Um, very beautiful thought. So if Shem says the following, and I've spoken about this before. So number one, we have to learn a lesson from Monachai that, that you can never get punished for doing good. And that's why he went into Haman's face in front of everyone. He's like, you're not getting punished because of me. Because if that was the case, God's not God. If God's punishing the Jewish nation because the rabbi is not bowing down to an idol, then he's not God. The reason he's punishing us is because of you guys, not because of me. So he don't want to hide in the base manager. just the opposite. But a very important lesson, very beautiful. I, I've said this, but I don't think you guys went in my share when I said this story. So he tried to explain why on Purim, there's a halach in Shulchan Aruch, there's a law in Shulchan Aruch, kol ha-poyshed yad on Purim, anyone who puts his hand out, you have to give him tzedakah. You can't let someone put their hand out and leave it empty. Give him a penny. You have to put something. Anyone, kol anyone who puts his hand out, a little kid, tzedakah, whatever, give him a quarter. Everyone on Purim, you have to put something in their hand. Don't leave their hand empty. Why? We don't have that halacha anywhere else. It doesn't say... Erev Shabbos, kol It doesn't say Chanukah, kol It doesn't say Sukkot, kol doesn't say that anyway. Just put them. Why? So he says the following. Amazing. He says there was a little boy and he wanted a new bicycle. And he came to his father and he said, Dad, I want a new bicycle. father said, I got you a bicycle two years ago for your Afikoma. He goes, I know, but it's too small. I need a bicycle. You, it only has three gears. I want one with 20 gears, 25 gears, whatever. His father says, listen, I'm not buying you a bicycle. Stop fetching. He went to his mother. He was like, I'm not buying you a bicycle. Stop fetching. He went to his uncle. He said, I'm not buying you a bicycle. They're very expensive. Stop fetching. And wherever he went, everyone told him, stop fetching. Well, he didn't get a bicycle. 
A week later, he's crossing the street, and he forgot to look both ways, and he gets hit by a car. And he gets hit by a car, and they put him into Hatzala comes, they put him into an ambulance, and they rush him to the hospital, and they call the parents, and they're like, your son was crossing Avenue J, and he just got hit by a car, and it's an emergency situation, you need to get to the hospital right away. So the mother and the father, the way he says it, it's amazing. The mother and father, she got hit by a car, whatever it is, come to the hospital, come to the emergency room, and they're like, where's my kid? Where's my kid? He, they're operating. He's in the emergency room. They're operating. His head, his head got crushed. His skull got broken. This guy happened. His legs, that, that, that. They're operating. We don't know whatever. We, we, you know, whatever. And they're, they're like, I can't believe this, whatever. I always told him to look both ways, did that, whatever. Doctor comes out and says, we did everything we could. We lost him. What? What are you saying? He just, he just walked out of my house going to school. What do you mean? We lost him. We tried. Of course, you could understand they, 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 they're almost fainting, right? What, 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 what do I do? He calls it, he, the Hatzala guy. All right. He's in intensive care. He's in a coma. They got him back. He's sitting by the, he, the father's sitting by the bed. He's in a coma. All of a sudden, he hears his son fetching. Ah. He goes, What? Chaim, you up? Yeah. What happened? Chaim, you got hit by a car. Wow. Can I get a bike? <laughs> Can I have a bicycle, please? Bicycle! We're going to buy you five bicycles, ten bicycles, a helmet with a light, with a horn, whatever bicycle you want, mountain bicycle, whatever you want, racing bicycle. Just get better. Don't worry about it. You got the bicycle. Thank you. All right. Okay. Comes out of the hospital. He goes home. Suda say, duh. His uncle bought him a bike. His mother bought him a bike. His father bought him a bike. He's got rollerblades. He's got a hockey stick. He's got... What happened? You had a bike two years ago. You don't need a bike. I don't have the money to buy you a bike. What changed? Why did you buy him a bike? With a helmet, with a horn, with a light. The best. Titanium. What changed? A week ago you told them no. You know what changed everybody? He almost lost them. And he realized when he almost lost them how precious he is. Because we don't realize when we have something how precious they are. And that realization came at the point when he was told we tried, we lost them. The doctor said, we lost him. When the father heard we lost him, he realized how much it was worth to find him. Buying a bike is nothing compared to losing someone. You want a bike, you got a bike. You want a helmet, you got a helmet. The next year, on the anniversary, they made a party. He said, hey, I want another bike. Father said, no, 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 no. You got your bike. You go out for pizza and have some ice cream. But no, I'm not buying you. Every, you think every single year now I'm going to buy you a bike for the rest of your life? Because you got hit by a car. On Purim, Hashem signed that every Jew would die. Done. We were done. 
the Jewish nation knew that Shem wrote that. They asked Mordechai, it's in that Megillah, what's going on? Mordechai asked El Yohanavi what's going on. Yohanavi said, it's not in blood, but God signed. And you can't, it's not easy to break something that's signed in clay either. So Hashem signed it. It's the first time ever since he created the world that he ever signed the Jews off. He never signed the Jews off. Even with the eagle, Moshe Beno, you know, the Salakti Kibarech, he didn't sign us off. He never signed us off. So Malachi told the Jews, we're in big trouble. This is the first time we've ever been signed off. Okay, but you have a rabbi. You know, Rav Chaim's going to save you. Lababach Rebbe's going to save you. A big, big rabbi. Shafank's going to save you. But they had no rabbi because Malachi was the one that got him into trouble. So they didn't like him at all. They're like, him? A rabbi? He's not a rabbi. He got us into all this trouble. But all the politicians, like, oh, but we got, we got what's his name in the White House? Trump's son-in-law, you know? We're good. Don't worry, America. We're good. All the Jews, don't worry. We got a good guy, you know? Jared. We got Jared. They had Esther. The queen of Persia is a Jew. <laughs> That's the biggest connection you can get. But then, all of a sudden, on Yeshiva World came out that she invited the biggest enemy to her party. And they're like, traitor? See what happens when someone gets power? Jew? She, she just invited the worst enemy of the Jews to her private party. She's one of them. So God wrote us off. The head rabbi is an idiot. He got us into trouble. And our woman, right, sleeping with the enemy, is now with the enemy. We're done. We're finished. By that point, all the Jews should have said, we're not Jews, take off your yarmulke, no more tefillin, that's it, rip off the mezuzahs. God gave up on us, we don't have a rabbi, we don't have a queen, we're done, why should we be Jewish? God, God if you wrote, you're going to kill me, I'm not. So the whole class at that point should have said, out of here. Instead, for three days, they fasted, and they davened, and they said to Hashem, the way Rav Shem says this, for the first time in the history of the world, they said, you, God, may have given up on us, but we will never give up on you. And that moment never existed in the world before and never will, will ever exist again. Because God will never write Xavier on us again. And Hashem said, I almost lost this child. A child that says to its father, Dad, you may have given up on me, Dad. It's okay. Because I'm never going to give up on you. I'm not going to buy him a bicycle? I'm not going to give this Jewish nation whatever they need? I almost lost them. They were dead and they came back to life. Whatever they want. So therefore on Purim, the holiest day you have to go down with seeking. Because it says that whatever you ask for with a full heart, whatever we're seeking on Purim, Hashem will give you. Why? Because anyone who puts out his hand, nice and loyal. And if Hashem tells us that you've got to give to anyone who puts out their hand, then God's got to give us when we put out our hand. So every Purim, because that's what Esther wrote, and that's very important. Okay, so I understand. The first Purim, right? Whatever you ask Hashem, He'll give you. But even in your story, Rabbi Wallerstein, the year after the kid got hit by the car, Right? He wanted a bicycle. He didn't get it because then it's just a memory. It's not the actually thing happened. So Esther and Monachai were very smart. And they wrote, no. Every year that we keep Purim is not a memory. Every year we keep Purim, we are living Purim over again. And therefore, it's like we got hit by the car and we got saved every single Purim. So if you read 
what they wrote to make sure that it's not just a memory. These days of Purim. This Karim should be remembered. Okay, so that's a memory, right? It's, a, it's like the year after, remembering. But then they wrote Venasim, the Choldovador. And it happens in every single generation. Not, it's not just a memory. We get hit by the car in every generation, and we get saved every generation. And therefore, every single Purim, whatever you ask for, Hashem has to give you. Just like the little boy who got his bicycle. So my bracha to everyone who's listening and whoever's here, whoever's watching, is that this Purim, Klai Yisrael should put out their hand and Akash Baruch Hu should put into our hands whatever we need, whether it's a wife or children or panasah or health or refuah or Yeshua. And definitely ask for Mashiach. If we really mean it, then it's a, every Purim is like the Purim that happened and we'll, we'll get that bicycle. And we need privately, each one of us, to say to Hashem that sometimes in my life I feel maybe you gave up on me. But even if you did, I'll never give up on you. And if you feel that, you say that, then you will take God from his Midas Hadin to his Midas HaRachamim. And I saw that today. I saw that by these little girls. These little beautiful Jewish girls just all the same in their uniform. They're not giving up on Hashem, even though there's so much going on in the world. We're not giving up on Hashem. And some of us feel He gave up on us. There's so much cancer, and there's so much divorce, and there's, there's just so much stuff. And people are like, where, are God? where is God? But God is there, and that's why that's the whole Simcha of Purim. But God needs to know that even if you think He gave up on you, but you'll never give up on Him. And that's what He's looking for. And that can break anything. That can break the game wide open. That's the key to the Super Bowl. That breaks the game wide open. And Bezrat Hashem, Kishbuch will listen to Atfilos. And um, it says that the holiday of Purim, even after Mashiach comes, the holiday of Purim will be celebrated. Why? Why? Why is the holiday, holiday of Purim after Mashiach? How can you compare the two? Purim, Haman was going to kill all of us. And we were saved, but look what happened to us. Look at us now. We got divorced, we got kids off the dead, we got atheists, we got people marrying Goyim. We, 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 so, so you saved us in this little thing, right? And, but look at now, look how many million, six million Jews died after Purim. So you saved us from Haman, and the Holocaust, you killed six million Jews. So, so like, why would I celebrate Purim? Mashiach comes, it's over. No more pain. No more pain, no more death, no more anything. Why would I celebrate Purim as nothing? It's a pimple compared to Mashiach. Why would, I, why would I celebrate Purim? And the answer is because Purim represents the one time in our life that God gave up on us and we didn't give up on him. Mashiach, God's not giving up, giving up on us. He's not writing, we're going to be destroyed. So that feeling that happened once, that Akash Baruch Hu said, you're dead. And we said, we might be dead, but you'll never be dead. You're forever. That has to be the one Mashiach comes to. Because that never happened. And that's bigger than Mashiach. Mashiach is going to save us. Purim, we saved him. He didn't save us. He wrote us off. We saved him. 
We kept him. We fasted for three days. We davened. Knowing that he said, you're dead, we davened anyway. And that's why Purim is the one holiday that even after Mashiach comes, not Pesach, not Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Purim. This is the one holiday because it represents something bigger than Mashiach. It represents that we did not give up on you, Hashem, when you gave up on us. May we be Zaycheh to celebrate both, Mashiach and Purim together. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.